The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. How you doing? Ready to go? You know, um... 150 years ago yesterday, of course, on July the 1st, 1867, bells rang out, bands played, people gathered across uh, the new Dominion of Canada to celebrate the founding of a country. It's hard to imagine what that would have been like 150 years ago, Uh, but many of us got together yesterday with friends and family. We went down to the waterfront, we saw fireworks, we celebrated in all kinds of different ways uh, this uh, glorious country that God has given to us. Uh, Three years before Confederation in 1864, uh, the Fathers of Confederation had met in Charlottetown and then a month later in Quebec City and then shortly after that they went to London uh, to form this nation. And at the time, uh, one of the fathers of confederation, his name, uh, Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley of New Brunswick, proposed that the New Dominion's motto, what appears on our coat of arms uh, in Latin, Amari Usca Admara, uh, seen here uh, on the coat of arms, uh, should be taken, it was his suggestion, that should be taken from Psalm 72, verse 8, straight from the scripture, uh, he shall have dominion from sea to sea from sea to sea being the Latin phrase that's on our motto. Now that was visionary at the time, of course, to presume that your motto should be from sea to sea when you're starting out with just four provinces all huddled against the Atlantic for the most part. It was just uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, a part of Quebec and part of Ontario that became Canada in 1867. And so Canada did not stretch from sea to sea. It did not go from Atlantic to Pacific. It did not touch, at that point, the Arctic Ocean at all. But Tilly was drawn to that verse because Canada had already declared itself to be a dominion, the dominion of Canada. In fact, on the way in here this morning, someone wished, uh, uh, Cheryl and I wished us a happy Dominion Day. How many people remember that? You old enough for that? Happy Dominion Day. And we were the dominion of Canada, a sovereign nation distinct from, the, from Britain, determining its own path. And that ver- verse, of course, spoke of Dominion. The verse is, in fact, and this speaks to the origins of our country, the verse is etched on the Peace Tower in Ottawa. I don't know how many of you have seen this before, but if you go to the Peace Tower and around the side of it, over one of the arches, you see this. Uh, He shall have dominion uh, from sea to sea. And so we have it etched right in our own parliament buildings. And so that's a little history lesson which I love and some of you are already glazing over uh, about. But given the, night, uh, the 150th celebrations, giving the, given the history surrounding the motto, given the fact that we're already in the psalm series, it seemed like a perfect storm that we should perhaps bring that all together and speak this morning about... Uh, Psalm 72 on this particular weekend, and to give us a solid understanding of what we're talking about regarding God's dominion in our country today. How that applies to us as Christ followers and as citizens of this great country. And I hope you know, I hope you know that God has dominion over Canada. I hope you know that. 
I hope you know that, can, that God has dominion over all. And I hope you're trusting in that. And that's what we really want to lock down in this message today from Psalm 72. God has dominion over all. That is a matter that is settled. And so we want to see that uh, today. So let's get started right away. Let's get into it. Uh, God has dominion over all. Uh, let's recognize uh, the government's part in it. We're going to talk about the government's part. We're going to talk about our part in it. And then we're going to talk about God's part in this. But let's start with uh, the government's part in all of this. You're going to see that this is a prayer to God for the king, the government of the day. And so let's uh, read. Let's start with the first 14 verses of Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like the rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Again, this is a prayer to God for the king, for the government. The equivalent today, we would look at this and, and because we are part of the commonwealth and uh, her majesty is our uh, sovereign, our queen, we would say, in a previous generation, we would say, God save the king. That would be the short version of Psalm 72. We would say today, uh, God save the God save the queen. We could sing it. Do you want to sing it? Do you want me to sing it? I thought about it. Did someone say no? <laughs> I'm hurt. But when you read through this prayer, you get a real sense that this is a pretty idealistic view of government. That you look at this and you'd think it was almost written during election season because so many promises are made. It's so idealistic. And... Um, we look at government today and we say, no, there's no way they could possibly measure up. I mean, how many people, let's just take a survey here, how many people know that governments are imperfect? How many people know this? Right? It's so silly even to ask, really. And no Jewish king ever achieved what this psalm speaks of. Not even Solomon in all of his grandeur and all of the influence, all the power he had, all the prosperity that came to the people, he still didn't even measure up to this. And so this psalm, in a very real way, is aspirational. It's striving for the best. It's praying for the best. It's, it's working for the best, but not surprised when we don't quite reach it, when politicians and leaders fall well short of the mark. Because we understand in, 
In our theology, we understand that this world is tainted by sin. Every aspect of this world is tainted by sin. I was in high school. I took every uh, history and political science course I could take when I was in high school. I loved all of that. And I remember the phrase, and some of you will remember it, that a power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the reason for that is sin in the world. We lived in a depraved society, a depraved world. And so with all of that in mind, when we sit back and we go, wow, a politician didn't keep their promise. Shocker. Whatever are we going to do? Well, the same thing we do every other time when government fails us. We continue working toward it. We continue praying. We keep our optimism about us. We keep working for the betterment and well-being of our society together as citizens and leaders together. Now, all of that said because you can tip over to the other side and just become so cynical and pessimistic about the whole thing. But it is true that government does much good and they are appointed by God to do it. Where do you get that, Todd? From the Bible. That's what God says about government. And sometimes we can forget the good that government actually does. In fact, in Romans, you can jot down this reference, Romans 13, 1 to 7. We're going to kind of look at a couple of verses out of that passage, but Romans 13, 1 to 7, read that later for yourself. But Paul gives some instruction on government, and he says this, essentially, government authorities, governing authorities are God's servant for your good. God's servant for your good. Now hang on a second, because this is the Apostle Paul, and this is the first century, and he's living in the Roman Empire, and so when he's talking about God's servant for your good, he's talking about the Roman Emperor who thought he was a small g God. Do you know which emperor it was? Want to take a guess? Which Caesar was it? It was Nero. Good guy or bad guy? What do you know about Nero? He's a bad guy. In almost every way, he's a bad guy. So many of the apostles and early Christians were in fact uh, martyred under Nero's rule. He burned Rome and blamed the Christians so he'd have an excuse to persecute them. This was not a good guy. But at the same time, he was the emperor over a Roman empire that had brought the Pax Romana to the entire Mediterranean world. They had brought peace. They had brought roads. They brought prosperity. And that was the very thing that allowed the gospel to move throughout the known civilized world. God's servant, Nero. Scripture, God's servant for our good. Mind blown. And so, whatever you might think of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, whatever you might think of Premier Kathleen Wynne, they're not Nero. 
And they are God's servant for our good according to the scriptures. So what is the government's part? Let's get to it. Let me give you these, a list of, I don't know how many I have here, three, four, five. Five of these. First, enforce the law. We see this in Psalm 72 too. May he or she, as the case may be, judge your people with righteousness. They enforce the law. And without the law, without the criminal code of Canada, without the other laws that govern the Highway Traffic Act, many of you are violators of the Highway Traffic Act. Some of you up to 12 times. Maybe someone even on our staff. I don't know. I understand the last time was urgent that he or she may have had to go to the bathroom really badly. <laughs> Enforce the law. May he judge your people with righteousness. Without government, there's anarchy. Number two, encourage prosperity. Verse three, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. This is okay to pray. God, I pray our country prospers. I pray it's an awesome place to live. I pray that we would share the wealth with one another. And so it's government's responsibility to manage the economy, to stimulate growth. That is a government's job. And in fact, if you ask liberals or conservatives or NDP or whoever you ask, they'll all say, yes, that's our job. They disagree on how to make that happen. But they all agree that encouraging prosperity, managing the economy is a thing that they're responsible for. How about number three, defend the vulnerable. Verse 4, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Verses 12 through 14 says the same thing. And this is where we as Canadians, can we, can we just pat ourselves on the back for a second? Go ahead and pat yourself on the back if you're a Canadian because we have done better at this than almost every nation in the world at taking care of one another. That we even, we even agree that we should sacrifice a little, all of us, especially those of us who are maybe prospering a little bit more, that we should sacrifice some to make sure that everybody has health care. That we should all sacrifice some so that there can be a universal pension plan, that there can be social assistance, that there can be employment insurance. We've agreed together as Canadians that we're going to, as best we can, and not perfectly for sure, but we're going to take care of one another. And again, Canada's better at that than most. And you know, I have a lot of American friends and they make fun of us and sometimes they call us socialists for all of that. But honestly, I think that's what makes us kind, not wanting to leave anyone out. I think it communicates love. I think it communicates gentleness. And I'd say that's all pretty defensible before the Lord. And I don't mind telling my American friends so. That we're not leaving people behind as far as we can help it. Here's number four, protect your citizens from enemies, foreign and domestic. Look at verse nine, may desert tribes bow down before him. These are marauding tribes that live around the border region and their whole stock and trade is to kind of insert themselves uh, into the borders and hit those border towns and harass the people and pillage the town and take away what they want. And the prayer here is that, no, our government's going to keep us safe from that. They're going to secure our borders and make sure no one's taking from us what is ours. Our military does that for us, our border agents. 
You know, in 1970, I was six years old and I was living in Montreal. My mom and dad are here. My aunt is here. We were all living in Montreal all the time. 1970 was significant. In October of that year, of course, the October crisis happened and the Front de Libération de Québec, the FLQ, was a terrorist organization that had been for many years blowing up mailboxes and making its presence known in the province of Quebec. Their goal, stated goal, was to separate violently, uh, if necessary, from Canada and they were proving that that's what they wanted to do. Again, I was six years old living in the city with mom and dad, and I remember very vividly as we drove around the town seeing soldiers because our prime minister of the day, Pierre Trudeau, had enacted the War Measures Act. It was extremely controversial, especially in Quebec, but soldiers lined the streets of Montreal, and not just for, for us, we were Montreal North people. I mean, it was in our neighborhood. Uh, two cells of the FLQ were discovered in our neighborhood, and soldiers were lining the streets around my grandparents' house. I saw this with my own eyes in our own country. And it could strike fear, and I remember having nightmares about the whole thing, but as you reflect back on it and you see what was happening, it was the decisive actions of our prime minister and of the federal government that secured the situation and protected the citizens of the city of Montreal and brought the terror to a close. And whatever anyone else might think about it, it was effective in restoring order. And that's the government's job. They are God's servants for our good, confronting our enemies, both foreign and domestic. And I'm grateful, and I want to say this on behalf of our church family, I'm grateful for all of the law enforcement officers, police, corrections, border agents, court officials. I'm grateful for our military I know there are some in the room right now, both those who have served previously and our veterans and those who are currently serving. I'm grateful for you and on behalf of your church family, I say thank you and I tell you right now from the scriptures, you are God's servant for our good and thank you. Amen. Well, finally, one more here. The government's part influenced the world for good. Verse 10 uh, states this uh, for us. May the kings um, of various lands render tribute. They bring gifts. There's respect and honor. And for the most part, I would say that Canada has a good reputation around the world for being peace-loving, kind, and generous. Now, before I leave this point, let me say we live in a great country, and I hope you know that. I hope you're grateful for it. While we engage in the... Um, the very common Canadian pastime of complaining about everything. That's why Tim Hortons was invented, so we had a place to do it. <laughs> uh, we should know that God has blessed this country and blessed us to be living here. No matter the anti-Christian bias that we are now seeing pretty predominantly in all levels of government and in society in general, God still has dominion in this country. God is still bringing about his will perfectly, though we may not see it. The government of the day, though they may come at us, though they may not like us, though they may reject our values, the government of the day still deserves our respect. After all, if you believe the Bible, God put them there to accomplish his will. 
Amen? One or two amens? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. All right, that's the government's part. Ready to see your part in it? Play your part in it. Your part in God having dominion as a believer. Now, you will always have a very unique perspective on nation and on citizenship. Let me read a few more verses here, 15 through 17. Um, The prayer goes on. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Now when I I think of all of this, again, this prayer is going on for the king, but you begin to see some of the responsibilities in this that we have along the way. And I, th- I think about um, my love for this country and my own patriotism, and you can gauge this for yourself with your own background and how you feel about uh, this country, but I've always had a high sense of patriotism. I don't know if it's because I grew up in Quebec where you kind of always had to have that and have such a firm sense of who you are. I think I might have told the story here not even just that long ago, but on the, uh, on the night after or the day after the uh, election of the uh, separatist party in Quebec, I was, I think, 12 years old. I went outside into the snow and I climbed the snowbank and I planted a Canadian flag and I said, if the separatists separate Quebec from Canada, this property will be the sovereign nation of Canada. Still... <laughs> A high sense of patriotism. In Quebec, you had to have that. You had to know who you were. You couldn't take it for granted. Beyond that, I grew up in a home where I had the story of my pappy, who at the age of 39, with three children at home, and his wife pregnant, my nanny pregnant with number four, decided it was so important for him to enlist and to heed the call of his king to go and serve in World War II. And so he left for several years and he served in the Canadian Army Signal Corps in England, was wounded in the Battle of Britain and sent home in 1942. He had such a heightened sense of patriotism, of love for country and king. He said it was his duty And somehow that story being told over and over again in my own hearing was just like, that is me. I am for that. That's my family legacy. How could I do any less? And so what is my part? What is your part? Well, for sure, verse 15 makes it pretty clear first that I need to pray for my country. May prayer be made for him continually. May prayer be made for the king, for the government, for the country, to cry out to God for righteousness to reign as Pastor Roger prayed on our behalf a few moments ago. Pray for our country. Pray for us to have the wisdom to discern and faith to believe in the midst of it, to endure and withstand everything that comes our way. Pray for it. How about secondly, contribute to its well-being? Verse 16, I'm thinking about this, the grain being planted and the cities being populated, but who's doing all that? 
It's the citizens. It's me and you. We're the ones going to our jobs. We're the ones contributing to society. We're the ones volunteering our time. We're the ones planting the crops. We're the ones who are making this country what it is. Working for the good of the land. Did you know when God sent the people into exile in Babylon, this is so telling. Here they were, they were Jews, and this conqueror had come in and, and taken their land, and then taking the choice people from the land away to a foreign land, to Babylon, to their own country, so they could make their own country better. And they settled in villages and towns and cities all over the Babylonian Empire, away from their own country, away from their own people, away from their temple and their worship. And in this foreign and hostile culture, the prophet told them, God told them through the prophet in Jeremiah 29, 7, this is what he said. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of that city, of that Babylonian town where you're, where you're living and working. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That, 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 that's encouraging me. I want to make the city of Barry the best place it can be. I want to contribute to the life of this city. Because we're going to see in a few minutes, I'm living like an exile in this town. I want to make Simcoe County the best place it can be. I want Ontario to be the best province it can be. That's really hard because British Columbia is beautiful. <laughs> I want this country to be everything it can possibly be. Because God told me to seek the welfare of it. How about this one? Um, number three, be law abiding. I think we touched on this one before, right Jeannie? Oh, sorry. That was bad. Wow. I feel bad. I may not do that at 11. I don't know. It's okay. This one's on video. I'll pay for that. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Notice what it says. Be law-abiding. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Because there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, be law-abiding. Peter said it really simply in 1 Peter 2.13. Obey the emperor. Again, what was his name? And here's Peter saying to obey him. And so we tuck ourselves under the law. We seek to obey the law. And you might ask the question, is there ever a time then when we should disobey the law. In other words, is there ever a time when civil disobedience is okay? And where the ethics of God become fully in conflict with what the government is doing, and when that begins to affect me personally or affect those on the margins, I will weigh out the ethic and decide if civil disobedience is appropriate. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II, went through this in Germany. When he saw the atrocities that the Nazis were committed, he decided as a pastor to be part of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And all of us would say... In that act of disobedience toward the government, there was justification because the greater ethic was to protect those who were being uh, slaughtered. 
Or you think of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement in the United States. There was a greater ethic that he was upholding. And through his pacifist means of marches and speeches and rallies, he was seeking to change the culture of America, to improve the civil rights. And we would say the greater ethic was in play. And so each of us would have to face this at some point perhaps. Let each believer be persuaded in his own mind and heart. It's a matter of conscience. We could get to a place like the apostles did in the first century when they were simply preaching the gospel, the good news of Christ, which for us is the highest mission. And they're brought before the authorities, the government of the day, who forbade them from doing it any longer and were beating them and imprisoning them for it. And the apostle said back to them, you remember this great line, we must obey God rather than men. There is a day when you can disobey, but for the most part, in most things, we are to be law-abiding. Here's another one, not popular, ready for this one? Pay your, pay your taxes, Romans 13, 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Jesus said it plainly in Mark 12, 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Enough said about that. Fifth, exercise your democratic rights. We're not giving up on government. We're not becoming cynical. We're not cashing it in. We're certainly not going to complain if we didn't vote. Amen? Amen? Yeah, some of you aren't convinced. You know, I've never missed voting in an election since I turned 80, uh, 18 in 1982. I'm not 80. <laughs> since I turned 18 in 1982, I have voted in 30 elections. Uh, 10 federal, 9 provincial, 11 municipal elections I've never missed. You should never be afraid to exercise your rights under the law. Paul and Silas in Philippi, you remember this story? They're thrown in prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel. Someone didn't like what they were doing. It was upsetting them, so they reported them to the police, and the police threw them in jail. The magistrate said it was okay. So they sat in jail all that night. A lot of things kind of happened. As it all turned out, the magistrates, the next morning, the magistrates said to the police, okay, go and tell those guys that they can leave prison. No trial, no charges. Paul said, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned. We were never charged, we never saw a judge, he says. And we are, well, this, these are the words that caught their attention, we are Roman citizens. They didn't expect that, you see, because Paul was a Jew. And they've thrown us into prison and they... And they, do, and, and they now throw us out secretly? You mean they want, they want us just to leave without saying anything about this? I like Paul a lot. And he says, no, let them come themselves and take us out. Well, the police reported these words to the magistrate. This is all in Acts 16, by the way. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens because, why? They had violated their rights. So they came and apologized to them. This is not something government does often. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Exercise your democratic rights. Now I want to say something about this. We need to be careful. Because increasingly the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which this nation was founded is being replaced by a 
liberalized secular ethic, I think it would be safe to say that Canada is no longer a Christian nation. Would you agree? We're not a Christian nation. And our mandate as Christians is not, listen now, our mandate as Christians is not to change the government. Our mandate is of, as Christians is not to change society. It's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible and what is our mandate is to preach the gospel. To make disciples, one at a time. We're not trying to create a Christian nation or what's called a theocracy. That's not our mandate. Our job is not to convert the country and make it Christian. Our job is to preach the good news to individuals and lead them to Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, if that's your mandate, that works anywhere. That works in China, it works in India, that works in Brazil, it works in Cameroon, it works in Scotland, and for sure it works here. We're not trying to convert the country. We're trying to lead people to Jesus. All right, here's a, a last thing. Party with. Party with. Party with your country. I've, I've traveled, I've had the privilege of traveling to 14 or 15 other countries. I enjoy the new experiences and the diversity of cultures, and I'm not saying it because it's a cliche, but I love coming home. I love here. I'm pretty jazzed about Canada, as you can tell. But like most Canadians, I resist the kind of patriotism that we see in the U.S., and I think that's part of what defines us. Canadians often have a hard time pinning down what exactly are we. The one thing we do know is what we're not. We're not those guys <laughs> south of the border. I have no idea what a Canadian is, but we're not that. You see, that's, that's part of what makes us who we are. And that's hard. If I could just speak to the fact that we have this massive neighbor to our south and the influence that comes our way their overwhelming size, their proximity, the movement back and forth across the border, and the cultural influence that comes across uh, through television and movies, music. Pierre Trudeau, our prime minister back in 1969, said this. He was in Washington speaking to the press club, and he said this uh, to the Americans, living next to you is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly and even-tempered is the beast, if I can call it that, one is affected by every twitch and grunt. <laughs> so we don't want to be that, but we can be patriotic in our own way, can't we? We can be proud of our country and celebrate it without being perceived to be arrogant, without the religiosity that Americans too often attach to their patriotism. And so let's celebrate this great country. It's my part in it. Now I say all of that recognizing that we do also have this, as I said off the top of this point, this unique perspective as Christians because we are in fact citizens first. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, we're citizens first of another country, a better country, a heavenly one. And so if you, if you think about it, you know, I just feel as a Christian that my values are so out of sync with the country that I live in. And yes, Yes, you get it. If your values are in sync with this country, that's a problem. Because your values are those of an, another country, a better country, a heavenly country. 
And again, Psalm 72 is so idealistic, in fact, that you cannot read it and see that it's actually not really, not in its ultimate fulfillment, not referring to Israel at all, and certainly not referring to any country since Israel. What Psalm 72 is really praying toward and really is about is the messianic kingdom. And when you read it again and you think about this being really we're praying for Jesus. We're praying for King Jesus. We're praying for him and his kingdom. His rule. And it reminds all of us who love and serve God that we are, again, Hebrews eleven thirteen. we are strangers and exiles on earth. We don't really belong here. The Apostle Paul said it this way to the folks in Philippi, Philippians 3.20, he said, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper puts this into perspective for us when he said this, therefore, wherever we live on earth, whatever country, whatever tribe, whatever family or clan, we are pilgrims, sojourners, refugees, exiles in all of those. Our first identity is with the king of the universe, not any country or nationality or political party or government regime. And then he makes it personal to his situation America, we could put Canada there, of course. America, Canada, is emphatically not our primary home or our primary identity. That should be spoken. It should be felt. And it should be precious. We should never be ashamed of identifying first and foremost as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. Why? Again, Hebrews eleven ten, because we are looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And we bring that message to a nation that's awesome, but is broken. A nation that doesn't have answers to every question. A, a nation whose institutions are failing a nation with imperfect governments, a nation who can't help every hurting person, who can't trade really in hope, not the hope that we have, to help people who are desperate and needing that hope. That's our part as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we have freedom in this country to proclaim openly the good news about Jesus Christ, to plant churches, and to spread the gospel witness everywhere. And we ought to. This country needs it, don't you think? This country needs the gospel, and that's our mandate. All right, finally, we've looked at the government's part and our part. God has dominion over all, and so let's worship him for his part in it. Amen? Let's worship him for his part. Look at the last a couple of verses there, 18 and 19. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen 
and amen. Now, as we've seen, there are really two levels of meaning here. There is a prayer in the immediate for the earthly king of Israel. By principle, we're going to apply that to our government. And from that example, we're drawing some conclusions about how we might relate to our earthly rulers and government. But the second and greater sense relates to this ultimate hope of the messianic ruler, the messianic king. Everything fulfilled in Jesus. It points forward to the coming of Jesus to inaugurate his kingdom, uh, which he has done, by the way. He inaugurated his kingdom when he came, when he uh, was incarnate, when he dwelt among us, when he gave his life on the cross, when he was resurrected from the dead, and when he ascended to the Father and sent us the Holy Spirit, he inaugurated the kingdom. But it's not perfect yet. It points forward to the final fulfillment that we still await. This is the not yet part of our theology. And so when we pray... We can legitimately think of U.S. presidents and German chancellors and our own Canadian prime minister, but ultimately we're praying about King Jesus. We're praying for his rule. And no matter if you live in the theocratic monarchy that was Israel or a democracy like Canada, God should be praised, he should be exalted, he should be worshipped for being the king and having dominion over all. Amen? He should be. Because he has dominion, he has it. He doesn't have to fight for it. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't need our support to get it. Nothing is in question here. The government, listen, the government's position on same-sex marriage does not violate God's dominion over our country. The absence of an abortion law does not phase God. He's still in control. His dominion is not undermined by the legalization of euthanasia or uh, the uh, recreational use of marijuana. If the dominant religion is Islam or Sikhism or voodoo, he's still king in those countries. He still has dominion. The so-called Christian nation is no more or less under his dominion than an atheistic one. God said, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God has dominion over all. Amen? He does. I think about Jesus Christ in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. What an awesome passage. Jesus is the rider on the white horse and, and his name is written on his thigh and on his robe. King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing here is taking God by surprise. Nothing here is out of his control. He is the king. He has dominion over all. And we should worship him for his part in it. So that's our part. Government's part. His part. He's in control. And for me, this has been kind of an interesting message. It blends of some of my various loves of history, politics, and theology all wrapped up in one. And thank you for indulging me during all of this. But we're going to close out our service by appropriately, I think, singing our national anthem. And uh, most of you will know, of course, there are multiple verses to the, al uh, to the anthem. We sing the most familiar one. We're going to sing... Um, another verse which speaks uh, to the themes that we've talked about today from Psalm 72. And this is a prayer, and this is what this series is about. As we think about our country, we should be praying out of the depths of our soul for this country.
And the thing that's awesome about our anthem is that it's not some battle hymn. It's actually a pledge on our part to stand up for our country as the scriptures encourage us to do. And it closes with a prayer to our God to keep our land. And so, while I'm not sure a battle hymn has a place in a worship service, as I know that a pledge and a prayer do belong here, and that it's not crass patriotism that causes us to do this, but it's us saying again, we want to obey the scriptures by being a good citizen of this country and a good citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.